Welcome to the MLHS Podcast. My name is Ian Tulloch. I'm here with Anthony Petrielli as always. Today is a good day. Andre Kasha is scoring goals. I'm happy. How are you doing, Anthony? Can I get something off my chest about preseason to start? Yeah, everyone loves preseason. There's just nothing that makes the world go around like overrating players in a meaningless exhibition contest. So go for it. If a guy is an NHLer, like a real NHLer, Literally do not say a word about his game in preseason. It was like, so I'll give an example. Josh Anderson comes down and he scores that goal where Morgan Riley's gap is atrocious. It does not matter. Morgan Riley does not care. If the puck hits his toe and breaks his toe, or if it hits him in the ankle, then you care. He's actively, like, he shouldn't be selling out to get in front of that shot. That's fair. At the same time, when a player has a long track record of certain habits and certain patterns that you pick up on and you see them again in a preseason game, I don't think that's a coincidence. Does he have a gap problem? Sure. But is that the time to point it out or discuss it? No. Okay. Well, you got to wait till the regular season. But if you're me and you're trying to evaluate a preseason game, what are you taking out of a Tuesday night game against Ottawa? It's really just the bubble guys. And it was interesting on that note, and I think it was 31 thoughts. 32 now. There's the 32 thoughts now, yeah, from Friedman. It might have been him, or I might have just saw it somewhere on Twitter. But some executive was quoted as saying, like, we saw last year that preseason doesn't matter. And generally speaking, I agree. Like, NHLers, will, like, they know how to ramp themselves up. They take tremendous care of their bodies now in the offseason. It's not the old days, you know, where guys like Keith Kachuk would come into camp just absolute refrigerators and need like a month and a half to kind of slim down and get into shape. I'm thinking Dustin Bufflin showing up 300 pounds. Yeah. Right. Like, so it's not, we're not living in those times. So by and large, I don't think it matters because ultimately like the stars and the real players on your team drive your team. But I do think it matters for those fringe guys. And I do think it helps those guys that are in the AHL actually start putting their names in the brains of the executives like Justin Hole, for example the first time I ever thought he could be a dude was in the preseason where he actually looked really good you know you watch a guy in the AHL and you kind of go well who knows but the first time he played preseason for the Leafs I actually thought he looked really really good and his skating really really stood out and it helps put your name on the radar in that sense I know for me, Ilya Mikheyev, the first time I ever saw him in a Leafs uniform game, one of the preseason, I went, who the hell is this guy? He can PK, he's carrying the puck back on the PK, making a pass to maintain possession, then getting off the ice. This guy's a player. This guy can do some things. Well, think about Bear Banoff last year, who actually looked pretty good in San Jose after the Leafs traded him away. He just didn't really, the Leafs tried giving him some looks early in the season, but it's a 56-game season, you're sprinting. And they couldn't really, you know, the first few weeks that guy played and he looked like a deer in the headlights. He did. I remember grading his games and he didn't get many puck touches throughout those games. It was really hard to grade him because he didn't do anything. Yeah. And then, and then it, it was like a few months in where he put it through his own legs or something and made a little play and he didn't score, but it was, it was legit. And I remember watching thinking maybe this guy can play in the league. And San Jose, to their credit, just snagged him and took a shot. And I think he was just under a point per game there. It was like six points in seven games. So I'm not going to go crazy on it or anything. Yeah, his first week or two with San Jose, he just blacked out. Yeah, which good for him. But he would be the perfect example of a guy who kind of needs to establish himself and show a little something. And he needs these preseason games. But does Morgan Riley need these preseason games? No. Does Jake Muzzin need these preseason games? Does TJ Brody need these preseason games? Hey, you know what? John Tavares, I think, could actually really use some professional hockey playing after what he went through in the postseason. So there are some examples where a veteran can get something out of the preseason, I think. So he's a good example of... So his first game, I just died of laughter because he tried to toe drag about a million players. 
including number of times at his in his own zone at his own blue line some successful some not so successful and to me that's you know you're not going to go down the bench if you're Sheldon Keefe and say John why are you towing those guys there right he's just like the the Habs got a breakaway because he tried to make a play at the offense's own blue line and and lost it but that's just a guy to me getting his touches going through his process trying to get his confidence back yeah, the game in and of it, like the actual game itself is inconsequential to him. He's just like, I'm just trying to get the feel back for making plays, doing things at this speed. You know, if you play summer skates or whatever, like, you know, whatever crap you do in the summer, it's not comparable to actually playing even in a preseason game at the NHL level, let alone a regular season. So that's kind of thing where, you know, people then get annoyed. Like, Why is he trying that? Or what, you know, he turned it over or whatever. It's just like, this doesn't matter, man. He's an NHLer and a really good one. And he's just he's just doing what he <laughs> what he knows he has to do to get his game ready. That's it. NHLer, much like Andre Kasha, who Sheldon Keefe made the point of saying he's an NHL player, which I'm thinking, man, this guy produced at a top six rate every time he's been healthy. I don't know why this is such a surprise to anyone, but Maybe people aren't tuning in for Anaheim Ducks games in 2016, 2017, 2018. So I guess I can appreciate that. It's kind of like when someone from Arizona that if you watched Arizona, you'd know player X was good or you'd know player Y was bad. But then all of a sudden you get to watch the play and you go, oh, who's this guy? A lot of a lot of people, there's East Coast bias when it comes to hockey evaluation. I think we have to realistically accept that. So when a guy like Andre Kasha comes over, unless you're a stat nerd or a complete hockey obsessee, you're probably not aware that Andre Cash is a zone entry wizard who can barrel his way to the net, generate shot volume at a high rate, and also convert on those chances at a top 30 rate in the NHL. I'm excited for Andre Cash in this lineup. I know the question with him is health. That's always going to be the question. You joked, will he play 20 games? And I, I said to you over text, yes, but it might take him 50 games to play 20 games just because health with him throughout the last couple of years. He played three games last season. I want to say he's never played a full NHL season, a full slate of 82. Realistically, what do you expect him to play this year? Is 50 even a fair expectation? Is 40 a fair expectation? I don't know. I just know that when he's on the ice, he's a difference maker offensively. And you can play him on the third line. You can play him up the lineup. I like the fact that the Leafs added a player who can give them a legitimate difference maker when he's on the ice at $1.25 million. That matters when you're tied up against the cap. Yeah, so the, the part where Keith was mentioning he was an NHLer, I don't know if that was just like people don't know and he was trying to set the record straight, but I mean, nobody's ever questioned if this guy can play in the NHL. He can absolutely play in the NHL. His career high of, of games played in a season is 66. That's higher than I would have thought. Yeah, the year he got traded to the Bruins, he played 55. Um, ironically, he was part of his draft pick rights were part of a series of trades involving the Leafs. Did you know that back in the day? I did not. I would have had to watch the dangle trade tree on it to see that. Draft pick rights <laughs> traded from Anaheim with Ryan Lash to the Toronto Maple Leafs for David Steckel. And then draft picks right traded from the Toronto Maple Leafs with Jesse Blacker, a second to Anaheim for Brad Stobitz and Peter Holland. Man, a lot of just high profile fourth liners that you just I mean, Holland at one point, it, it kind of reminds you about how far we've come because Holland was traded for, and basically people were praying to God this guy could be a top six center on this team. And now the Leafs walk out, Austin Matthews and John Tavares, and we're as unhappy as we've ever been, which is kind of kind of wild. You have to pinch yourself once in a while. But to answer your games played question, I if you get 50 games from Cache, I mean, you would be basically thrilled. I just, to your point, I've just had a hard time getting excited for him, even if he plays the first 10 games. I'm still going to be not too excited for him because it just seems inevitable. And it's hard to have these guys play prominent roles in your lineup uh, if you can't trust them to stay healthy. Yeah, and you're thinking postseason. You're thinking, is this a guy I can depend on to be there when we're in the postseason? I know we've joked about Jake Muzzin in the past, how he's been injured for two of the last postseasons. I think it's very likely that Kasha isn't 100% come playoff time. But and if you're playing him, you're probably not getting the best version of Andre Kasha. But if I'm trying to take an optimistic spin here, 
I want to get Andre Kasha higher up the Leafs lineup if I'm trying to get the most out of this team. I know that you can play him on a third line with a camp fit center if you wanted or with a Kerfoot at center. And the idea would be that Kasha is the offensive driver on that third line. But I really like the idea of playing him on a line with Nylander, sliding Nylander over to the left wing, playing Kasha on the right wing because that's where he plays. Kasha's a right winger, whereas William Nylander is just a forward. William Nylander can play left wing, he can play right wing. He can play center despite what Sheldon Keefe, uh, you know, putting him to some bad situations and now never going back to that well again. But if I'm building these Leafs lines and I'm trying to come up with a way to maximize the results, I like the idea of a Nylander, Tavares, Kasha line. That sounds like a first line to me at the NHL level. Yeah, and and that's the toughest part is, is he could either potentially carry a line lower in the lineup or he can help you play with a top guy higher up in the lineup that allows you to bump down another top guy to create some real significant depth that they've lacked for years. It's just really hard. He seems like a luxury at this point as opposed to a linchpin. And you would love him to be a linchpin because if he could if you could trust him, and technically you can't trust anyone, so I take that part in stride. But he has... I mean, we're Leafs fans. We're well aware that, you know, nothing comes for granted. He he has a track record, though, that's really, really hard to ignore. And I know I was I was messaging you during that preseason game in Montreal. And the first period, I was thinking, okay, this, this guy looks like he hasn't played hockey in a little bit. And the second period, uh, before he scored and all that, you, you might remember I sent a message. And I was like, well, it looks like Kasha kind of got his timing back and started figuring it out. He's dropping the shoulder and barreling his way to the high danger areas on the ice. He's winning puck battles along the boards. And he's doing all that while making high skill plays to gain the zone. It's I love watching it for a guy who's making one point two five million. That guy should not be making that amount of money. He's much better than that. And that's the thing, though. It's it's uh, it's ironic in a sense because you mentioned some of those. He's in a good way. He's like a controlled reckless sometimes, and how aggressive he can go to get the puck which is awesome and you love it, but he's tiny. And has an injury history. So if anyone is going to be going into corners and you're a little bit hesitant, it's him if I'm a Leafs fan. And you're watching him and you're going, don't play like this. Like you can't, (laughs) like you have to pick and choose your spots. Like there's a definitely a time and place, you know, you're in the final 15 games of the season. You're in a playoff race. You're in the playoffs. You're all in. But do you need to be doing it game 22 at the end of November on a Wednesday? Probably not. You're wondering if he should have some more Phil Kessel habits going into corners instead of trying to be the next Zach Hyman? To be honest, you know who else played like that? Zach Hyman used to play like that, and he's had trouble staying healthy too. But Zach Hyman's a little bit bigger and a lot stronger. Like, Zach Hyman is thick. I think Zach Hyman's going to enjoy going from Austin Matthews to Connor McDavid. I don't know if you got to watch that preseason game, but man, it makes me both happy and sad simultaneously. I don't know how to feel watching him go through the handshake lineup. It's just... I'm going to miss that guy. And number 18, it didn't feel right. Like, the whole thing was just... It's weird. I'm happy for him. He's a children's author. He couldn't be a nicer guy. I'm I'm always going to be rooting for him. Can't wait for the Team Canada narrative to start. Can't wait for the Hyman-McDavid-Marner line. It already started. Hyman-McDavid-Marner. Lock it in. Those guys need Hyman to succeed. Him not being on the Leafs honestly feels like a bad dream. Like when I watched it, it was almost like you were going to wake up and he was going to be a Leaf again and all was going to be right in the world. It was legitimately sad because when he first came on and he was playing left wing and he couldn't handle a pass to save his life, I was more frustrated than most with it. I mean, it was tough to watch. Andrew Berkshire had some awesome stats on it where he led the league in high-quality scoring opportunities. I want to say he scored on 2% of them. Yeah, and he just he just worked his ass off and got... He improved so much, and we all just saw it before our eyes. And I don't think anyone doesn't love a story of just watching a guy work his absolute bag off and improving as much as he did. And getting a bag because of it. So good for him, man. Like, it's nice when hard work gets rewarded. Life doesn't always work out that way. So when you see something like that, you want to root for it. You want to believe in meritocracy. So good for him. I'm happy he got paid. He absolutely earned it. Couldn't have gone to a worse franchise, for sure. (laughs) 
But he provides elements that they desperately need. The hard part is, I think if you're Edmonton... So the Leafs need them too. <laughs> uh, any hockey team could use what he provides. But what's funny is, if I'm an Edmonton fan, I want him on a different line from McDavid. McDavid doesn't need Hyman to drive that line. Yeah. McDavid needs someone to drive their third line, and we know Hyman can do that. We didn't know Hyman could do that two years ago, but last year we learned, oh my god, Hyman can carry the puck from D-zone to O-zone, initiate offense in the offensive zone. He can do so much more than he came into the league being able to do. I really marvel at his how much, how far he came as a puck carrier, as an offensive player, as a finisher. Because, like you said, he was just a puck battle guy. He was just a go hard into the corner and win those battles. The fact that he is developed into a 30-goal player, and one that I think reasonably will score 30 goals this year. If he stays healthy, he's another one. If he stays healthy, then yeah. If he doesn't, then he won't. All right, so you brought up the fact that in the preseason, you don't care about NHLers, especially veterans, and I get that. Morgan Riley, me complaining about his gap in my Leafs report cards. If you're a Morgan Riley fan, I can understand why you would be pissed off at that. I get it. So what do you care about? You care about the depth forwards. You care about the position battles. You care about, I'm going to start listing some Leafs right now. You care about Michael Bunting, Nikita Gusev, yeah. Joshua Hosang. Uh, who, Timothy Lilligren. Timothy Lilligren is a big one. Rasmus Sandin. Uh, for me, Travis Dermott, just because I'm always obsessed with Travis Dermott. He looked good, by the way. He looked good. Yo, he did a spin around in his own end again because that's just what he likes doing. That's that's the go-to move. To be honest, I kind of I kind of respected it given what happened last year that he was like, screw it, I'm just gonna. Some PK Subban energy of you know what? This is how I play. I need to do this to be successful. Might burn him. It's the same with John Tavares and the toe drags. It's just like I'm doing it, man. It's preseason. I don't give a shit. So, Anthony, I want to ask you, you're watching the preseason right now. Who's impressed you the most so far, and who's impressed you the least so far? We'll do this like the tweet I put out after every game for the last half decade. A and B, who's your most impressive Leaf and your least impressive Leaf? Of guy, I'm only going to answer for guys that I think are on the bubble. And that's a fair point. Or guys who are fighting for that left-wing roster spot. Yeah, and and I'm uh, I'm struggling to pick between... Michael Bunting, who I really I really liked in his debut, and Timothy Lilgren, who Ooh. I thought was solid. And I've mentioned it here before on this podcast. I, I was at his NHL debut. I've actually been strangely lucky enough to see him live a few times. I thought at the debut that I was there that he was an NHL player. I still think he's an NHL player. I think he can play in the league. I don't know how high he can play up in the league, but he looked, again, to me, like he looks like an NHL D-man. So I think any number six defenseman at the NHL level, number five defenseman, can play with Jake Muzzin. I think Jake Muzzin That's is the fair. ultimate carrier because Jake Muzzin does everything really well, including offense, which everyone forgets about because... He scored in the game. <laughs> well, But not just that, but yeah. if you look at the last two years since joining the team, he leads the Leafs in points per 60 at five on, at five. on five. He leads them at, in just pure five on five points, I'm pretty sure. Okay, well, I like going per 60 just to you know put everyone on a level playing field, but... He's an offensive producer, even though you don't realize it because he plays a subtle game. Defensively, he's great. In transition, he makes subtle plays. Defensively, in the neutral zone, he stands up at the right time and shrinks the ice and gets your team the puck back. And he can shoot. Yeah, he can shoot, too. He's got a bomb. So you play him alongside Justin Hall. Justin Hall does his Justin Hall thing. You play him alongside Timothy Lilligren. Lilligren has some really big strengths at 5-on-5 five five that I want to talk about. Smooth puck mover. I don't like it when he tries to make... Uh, an A-plus play when he tries to go for the home run every single time. I like it when he makes the little slip pass underneath, when he shakes the first four checker and just fires a little saucer pass off the boards to the open winger. When he makes those simple passes to advance play up the ice, I love it. When he tries to do a little bit too much in transition, that's where it gets a bit dicey. But defensively, Timothy Lilligren's really impressed me because watching him in his draft year, watching him with the Marlies the first couple of years, I didn't know what the hell he was because I didn't like him in the offensive zone. I thought he was supposed to be a dynamic offensive player, and frankly, I never really saw that from him. On the power play, I don't think he can quarterback a power play too well. But in transition on defense, we met, what I just said about uh, Jake Muzzin, when it came to shrinking the ice and knowing when it was time to gap up and prevent the other team from gaining the zone, I really like the way he does that. And if you play him alongside Jake Muzzin, I'm not saying that's going to be the pairing. But if you do that, I think it could be an effective pairing, and it'll allow you to move Justin Hall down to a different pair. You can play around with some things. I don't think Timothy Lilligren's going to be on a shutdown pair with Jake Muzzin. That's but I think it's problem. a problem. I think it's a possibility, and I think he's an NHL player. I don't think he's a fantastic one. I think he's probably a bottom pair 
right-handed puck-moving defenseman, but he's much better defensively than I think a lot of Leafs fans realize, and I think he's a lot worse offensively than he was yeah. touted as coming into the league. In the offensive zone, I don't know how dynamic he is, but I like the way he impacts the game at 5-on-5 five five in transition, both offensively and defensively, and I think it's part of the reason he's going to get some games this year. I like what I've seen from him so far. I don't think he's dreadful on the PK either. I'm loath to say a guy's ever good on the PK unless they're very obviously exceptional. So much of it is structure and systems and coaching, right? But from what I've seen from him at the AHL level, he can actually read the play and know what's happening and go in the right spots, essentially. So, you know, like I said, I'm I'm loath to say he's good on the PK, but I think he can PK, which is also nice to have. Plus, he's right-handed, so I'm not going to ignore that. I, I think they want some righties. Justin Hole's really the only guy. To your point, if they if they play him with Muzzin, I don't know if that's a shutdown pairing, but you also play what? You play the Habs, you start against the Habs, you play the Sens a few times. I mean, you can try it. I'm not saying that they're they're gimmies, but the Atlantic's a bizarre division. There are four elite teams and f- uh three garbage teams and Montreal, whatever you want to consider Montreal. I guess, yeah, I guess my I should clarify that point about playing those teams. They're good teams, and I think they could beat you. I mean, anyone in the NHL could beat anybody. But you're not, you wouldn't be asking him to, like, start the season against Braden Point, Cooch, Bergeron, Marchand, Barkoff, Huberdeau. You'd be like, why don't you go play Nick Suzuki, and let's see if Cole Caulfield's good in, in like, a full season. Or go play against... Tim um, Stutzla. Not, not Brady Kachuk, because he's not signed. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say not Elias Pettersson, but I know they're not going to play too many games against Vancouver. I just had to throw that in there while we're talking RFAs. <laughs> but that but that kind of thing. So you could dip your toe in the proverbial water and play with it. The tough thing for me is I've actually really liked the D pairings so far. Can you elaborate a little bit? I know you brought this up to me. You, this, wanted, this was a topic you wanted to dive into. So what are the D pairings that you've liked so far? The... The Sandine Brody, the Muzzin Lilligren, and the Dermot Riley. I am a big proponent of pairing young guys with vets that can actually teach them how to play the game and support them. Steadying presence on the breakout, defensively. I, I see what you mean. Riley Dermot kind of terrifies me. I can't lie. Yeah, I think that they're a bit of an adventure. I think the lot like. And I'm not even saying this as a as like wanting to see them win, so I should clarify that. I'm more of just saying this from the angle of I would find them hilarious. I think they'd be pretty funny, <laughs> and I would enjoy it. Would it force Riley to actually play defense at 5-on-5 five five if Dermot's jumping up in the neutral zone every time? Would Riley actually have to skate back, or, or is he still up in the play as a fourth forward? It'd be funny to see how far they push it, you know? <laughs> like, it, like, I would enjoy it. Like, screw it. We have five forwards on the ice right now. We're all pushing play, which, by the way, is something they've kind of been doing on the breakout. They're activating the weak side defenseman, and then the puck carrier is a defenseman. All of a sudden, you have five guys skating up the ice. It's cool when it works. You enter the zone, and you have passing options. But when it doesn't work, it's a 2-on-0 or a 3-on-0 the other way. We saw that a couple times in the preseason. Yeah, and part of me is is those guys just... it's. I don't even know if it's necessarily systemic and i think it's just those guys trying to make a play because because to some level it's just been stupid yeah i was gonna i don't think they're doing that in game one of the playoffs no it'd be insane and and so this was gonna bring so you asked so those were my two guys that uh were impressive i thought lilligren looked really good solid and steady and bunting just we've kind of talked about a little bit before he just he's has the tools to kind of fit in on whatever line kind of role you want to put him into, as long as you're not asking him to carry a line. I think he's the closest you're going to find to Zach Hyman. He's not Zach Hyman. He's no, not. Course. He's what, a third of Zach Hyman, half of Zach Hyman, if we're just talking actual value. But I think he does similar things if you're trying to find a guy who can drive the net, find a guy who's willing to be F1 on the forecheck, finish a hit, hold a guy up against the boards while Nylander comes in and scoops out the puck. He's feisty. He has some skill. You can kind of move that around and see where it fits best. So it was only, it was the very first game of preseason. That's the other thing. Like the first week guys are fired up, right? Guys look good in the first week because they're fired up. They want to make an impression. Those impressions die down quickly. And at some point, I know everyone made fun of it for years, myself included, about Babcock's good pro but at some point you have to be a pro and it's just coming to the rink and being good every single day 
and that's hard. Like that's really, really hard. I remember writing an Igor Ojeganov article, wondering if he was going to be someone who could really help solidify Toronto's defense pairings. And because in the preseason he made some plays, he made a couple slip passes underneath, couple big hits, big shot offensively. Was that before or after Shabbat toe dragged him to eternity? in the second game of that season. Yeah, I think it was before that. I think it put it out after game one of the regular season and after preseason when things were really hype. So yeah, small sample size alert. I know I'm a nerd and I try to rely on the large sample, not the small sample. Here I am overreacting to individual preseason games. So, you know, maybe I need to pump the brakes a little bit here, but there's a player who I have a large sample of evidence on who I've always kind of believed in and the Leafs are giving him a shot and he's impressed me so far, Joshua Hosang. I know he turned the puck over and it led to a breakaway the other way and that was frustrating, but his combination of speed and puck skills, I think those specific skill sets are at a top six level. I really like what I see from him when he picks up the puck and he goes. And off the rush, I think he's dynamic and can make a play. And on a three-on-two, I think he can bait a defender into coming after him and then sauce a player into open ice. And it's hard to find guys who can make those kind of plays, especially on cheap contracts. The concerns with him are going to be, is he holding on to the puck a little bit too long, turns it over, and now your team's out of position, you're giving up an odd man rush. Is he committed to the defensive side of the game? Is he committed to taking a hit on the forecheck? There there have always been a lot of concerns with him when it comes to that kind of stuff. But you're not going to find too many guys on PTOs right now who can provide the offensive upside that he can provide. And watching him play alongside Tavares, we know how Tavares can make players around him better, but... I like the idea of Joshua Hosang playing alongside someone who can pass him the puck, get him into some open ice. He's fast. He's skilled. He can finish. He can shoot. He can pass. He doesn't play defense. And there's a long track record of him, you know, bouncing around. being Okay, he's in the NHL and now he's out of the NHL. He's in the AHL and now he's in a different league. So what do you really expect from this guy? We're going to need to see more games from him. But I am impressed with the tools. I'm always a big fan of my zone entry guys, guys who can gain the zone with possession to make a play. I think you need more of those in hockey, and I think he can give that to you. But I know you've always been skeptical on him as a player, so I'm curious what your thoughts are And after just watching him for one game. I think the biggest way that people get fooled in preseason is they don't focus on five-on-five. Five. Power play doesn't mean shit for most of these guys. And that's where Semyon Durargachinstev, I, I thought he was great on the power play, and at five-on-five, five, I don't like him at all. He was the first example I was going to give. Like He did not look good at 5-on-5. Five five. Kind of reminded me of Bracco in that on the power play, he looks locked in. But, dude, best case scenario, you're going to be PP2. You need to provide value at 5-on-5. Five five. And let's clarify that best case. So you have the big four, probably Riley on power play one. Let's just say. Let, even if they split up, let's just say those are five guys you know. Right? Jason Spezza is playing on the power play. They didn't, they didn't give Nick Ritchie two and a half mil. To not play like he's gonna get a he's gonna get a real shot no matter what on the power play net front yep him and bunting net front options right they probably will both get opportunities and possibly together where you say bunting you go in the bumper roll and Richie you go Ooh, in front that's not enough skill for a NHL power play unit for my liking but... potentially and and then you have at least another D man on that unit let's say sandine sandine i'd imagine if he's in the lineup yep right and then that leaves one spot and you have uh if cache is healthy he's on it yep right and then kerfoot kerfoot's making three Eh, i don't i don't like kerfoot on the power play man i don't either but they're making they're paying him three and a half million they've pretty much consistently given him looks on the power play I would be floored if they just completely got away from that. They bent over backwards to keep him this offseason. Right? So, I mean, if you read the tea leaves, it seems like he would get a shot. You got Wayne Simmons, who they had on PP1 at points last year. So, all this is to say is to get on a power play is really, really tough. And on this team, that power play, that second power play unit plays what? 30 seconds of power play? In a perfect world, yeah. That's not a perfect world they don't play at all. They <laughs> in a perfect world, they already scored, yeah. Right? But all of that is to say is if, if the Leafs are making decisions going, oh, shit, who's going to play the final 30 seconds of this power play that we already tanked on with our top guys making like $40 million combined? Like, that's not how you make the team. You actually have to be good at five on five. So SDA, really good example of I could care less. Like, it was nice to see him look good on the power play. He's crafty. Kudos to him. But it does not matter. 
And I thought Nick Robertson honestly was also on that same boat. Like he was creating and doing very, very little at five on five. Like he was creating very little and he was doing very little. Can you take that point and bring it back to Joshua Hosang? Because I think that's where you're going with it. Yeah, and then and then there's Hosang who he was interesting because he was buzzing around and I know you referenced the turnover for the breakaway, but that wasn't actually the play that stood out to me as to like what his problem is because you're trying stuff like it's going to happen. But there was a shift in the second where they had a long shift. They were in the half zone for an extended period of time. And then it might've even been that breakaway shift, to be honest, there was a turnover. Then the Habs were in their zone and then the Leafs finally broke it out and everyone's tired. John Tavares is already on the bench and he's crossing center with bunting and like gaining the blue line. Tavares is with the puck right now. No, Hosang. Okay. Sorry, okay. Tavares has already gone off because they've been gassed. They're making a long change, and instead of just like putting it in the corner and getting off after what was like a minute long shift or whatever it was, a long shift, he tries making a drop pass, and it's a two on three. It's maybe a two on three and a half with the way the Habs were back checking, and it's a turnover. And the Habs go down, they get a chance. So it's that risk assessment, trying to make a play versus making the right play. That's that's honestly, like, that's American League hockey. That's East Coast hockey. That's, like, you know, that's junior stuff. That's I'm at the end of my shift, and I'm gassed, and I know that I'm gassed, but I'm going to try to make this one last play, this one last part of... That's not NHL hockey. You know what I want to see a guy do in that situation is just turn around and pass it back to an open player and then reload. Yeah. yeah. The Leafs are, are big on that. Sheldon Keefe loves it when instead of dumping it in and changing, you swing back and restart the breakout. I think that's fine in the regular season, but it's not playoff hockey. Dude, you say this all the time, and I think this is the way the Leafs want to win. They want to win by... Well, how have, how have they been winning in the playoffs? Yeah, well, not they haven't been, but... I know, I mean, that's my point. I'm well aware of this. Okay, so the Leafs are going to win in the playoffs by trying to emulate Daryl Sutter hockey. That's not how they're going to win. No, but teams were... I'm just saying, don't do that regroup. Like, you can't. Like, the Pierre Engvall loop and regroup, like, you can't do that in the playoffs. I think you can. I think William Nylander can do it. I think high school players can do it. Columbus had the book on it. I'm pretty sure Cam Atkinson scored a goal off of it because he just... He sat on it. Getting five players behind the puck, setting up a trap. Yeah. There's certain things that they do that are good in a regular season and over the course of a long grindy season that are great, but they're not come a seven game playoff series. Okay. So I want to, I actually want to get deeper into this. So you don't think the regroup is a good play, whereas I love it. No. Okay. I hate when at the end of a shift, a player just dumps the puck in and gives the other team the puck hops off the ice. I agree. It sucks, but sometimes it's, that's the play. Like that's just the way it goes. There are times where, yeah, you're, you have the puck there, you get cornered towards the boards, you're at the blue line, you can't turn yeah. back around. If you turn back around, you're going to lose the puck, so now you have to launch it into the zone. And in the regular season, you have opportunities to loop back because guys are flying by and just going for line changes or whatever. Guys aren't as tight on you checking. Okay, yeah, like, that's it's not the same. It's not the same. It's barely even the same sport. It's much tighter. It's... Well, and it, I watch a lot of basketball. If anyone watches yeah. soccer. How much harder I mean, is it to score points in NBA playoffs? Like, guys actually, like, give a shit in the second quarter. They're on top of you. In transition defense, guys aren't coming back slowly. Yeah. Guys are right on your ass, and you don't have the room to make that play. So you're saying it's harder to swing back and regroup when there's a guy right on top of you. And I'll give you that. But I still think it's... I still think if you're a team built on skill and puck possession, that that's what you should lean into. You shouldn't try to be something you're not. Yeah, but there's ways that you can do it. I mean, if you watch Tampa, they do it all the time, but they're still a team that's on skill and puck possession. They're just actually far more aggressive when it comes to retrieving the puck back and not in, I'm going to lay you out to get this puck, but in the way that like, there's stick work and stuff, like how heavy Braden Point is. Braden Point is, I was, yeah, thank you for bringing up. He's a perfect example of how I want a hockey player to play. He's what, 5'10", if that? And he's one of the best four checkers in hockey because he gets in the right spot. He gets his stick in the way. He's not no. even that physical. He's feisty, but he's not. He doesn't hurt when he comes in on the four check. He's just annoying to play against. If I'm a defenseman going back on a loose puck and I'm on a puck retrieval, I have to quickly turn and get make a pass to my open D partner. All the forward has to do is get in the way, get his stick in the right spot, 
and prevent me from making that next pass. That's what Braden Point does really well. That's what a lot of Tampa Bay players do really well. It's what you want to see some of the Leafs players do a lot better because if Mitch Marner can do that a bit better, if William Nylander can do that a bit better, if some of these other skill guys who we're talking about, the whole sayings of the world, if, if, they could br- if every single Leaf could bring a little bit more of that, it would make such a big difference to this team's overall level of play, especially in a playoff series, which, like you say, that's when things get a bit tougher for the Leafs. And Braden Point is a good example of he he lifts sticks by dropping his shoulder, right? Like he it's it's an aggressive overall movement. Like whereas some the the Leafs used to be like this. I, I actually thought that they kind of got it out of their game in the past year and a half. But um, the best example is you know the Matt the Matthews goal and game in his first ever game where he stick lifted Carlson after the off the off the boards bank play and Carlson stopped the puck and he just gave him the old like the little quick two hand stick lift like pickpocket little Datsuki in that's my puck now yeah. like you don't yeah. get to do that in the playoffs because guys are way harder you don't like you can't like I think Matthews can do it to a few guys I think I, I think haven't there are some seen pick really, pickpocket guys like that in the playoffs and even Datsuki to be fair he also had a wrist injury I want to know what Austin Matthews with a healthy wrist can do on a really hard stick lift even even Datsuk, like Datsuk didn't, it wasn't like a quick little, you know, both of his hands touching at the top of his stick, like little move. Dat, Datsuk was pretty heavy as well. So Datsuk was the perfect hockey player, man. God. <laughs> yeah, I know. All that say back to Hosang, not the perfect hockey player. I think the skill set can fit in. I want to see him in week two and three when he's not on adrenaline to kind of see when it mellows. I mean, he did have a plump spot beside a really really good player yeah what does he look like in a fourth line role what does he look like when he's playing with Kerfoot yeah you're back in you know it was Toronto fans for the first time if you weren't fired up for that one and you're and you're anybody but let alone him in the situation that he's coming from like give your head a shake so I'm kind of just looking to see what regular Josh Hosang looks like all right, we mentioned Braden Point. We are going to mention Mitch Marner in the bumper spot in the power play because I think that's an interesting conversation. But before we do... Did you say disappointed? Because I had a disappointed guy. And I wanted to mention mine real quick. Nikita Gusev is mine. That was mine too. Okay, all right, let's 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 double down on this. So he didn't I'm do big shit. on skill. <laughs> I'm big on skill. I'm big on guys who can make plays. I, what I brought up about Hosang, I want a guy who when he gets into open space, off the rush, three on twos, can make a play to break down the defense. Hosang in one-on-one situations, or sorry, not Hosang, Gusev in one-on-one situations was losing the puck. And he had plenty of room to break down the, the opposition. And I don't know if he was just fighting the puck in his first game. Maybe he blacks out in his next couple preseason games and we're talking about how impressive he is. And now this is a skill guy that the Leafs can uh, rely on a bit offensively lower in their lineup. But man, disappointing start to a guy who was supposed to be an offensive difference maker. We know he doesn't play defense. We're well aware of that. But offensively, wasn't he the MVP of the Olympics? And he was a point-per-game player in the KHL for a while. This guy is an offensive, strong player. And he didn't look very strong in his first preseason game. Yeah, and that's the thing because he was was one of the guys that we talked about last week to say, like, there's a real opportunity for him here. And when, you know, you see Hosang with where, you know, he looked, you can see a pretty quick climb, to be honest, to having a prominent spot somewhere in this lineup. Like the comp, the high end guys, like the four of them are real, real high end. But after that, it's a pretty steep drop off and it, it's there for the taking. Who's Toronto's fifth best forward? If he's healthy, it's, it's Cache. That's a, that's a good one. I'm going to say Ilya Mikheyev. And I know that we didn't want to talk about guys enough. who are bonafide roster spot. I think he's going to score this year. I think he's going to score more than he did last year. If he does, if he if he throws up like 20 goals and like, you know, 45, 50 points, he probably is their th- fifth best forward. He's, he's an elite penalty killer. I want to know what his shooting percentage is going to be this year because on two-on-ones and breakaways, I think it's going to be higher than 0%. I really, really do. But he had the mini breakaway against the Habs, and I had about zero. For, like, the second I saw him, I was like, okay. Well, you know what's funny is the moves aren't terrible. Okay. Like, some of them are actually forehand, backhand, trying to go just above the pad. No, it wasn't, it wasn't even a bad try, but, you know, it was like, it, I saw it was him, and you sit there, and you go, okay, I can take a sip of my beer. Yeah, go cry, go make yourself a sandwich, go to the bathroom, do what you need to do. I yeah. can go for a lap. It's, <laughs> it, you know. And honestly, like, I give the guy a hard time on here. 
But I love Mikheyev, man. He's so fast. He works. And he looked unbelievable in the preseason. Like, he was all over the ice. When he's on the ice, you're going to be in the offensive zone with the puck because when he's pursuing the the opposition on the forecheck, he's, he might be the least best player without the puck right now. He literally does everything that you would want a player to do, but when you can't score to the comic levels that he has been reaching, you're ultimately, like, at you hurt yourself at some point. Like, it's just, it's too much. I compared him to Zach Hyman recently, like rookie Zach Hyman, second year in the league, Zach Hyman, because he does all those things that help you get the puck back and help you get the puck to the high danger areas. He just never, ever finishes. I think people got to cool it with the Hyman comparisons. I think Hyman was a unicorn and you're, you're using it, but I saw someone else, I forget who, but they were comparing a guy in preseason who was in his mid twenties as well. I was like, you can't just compare a guy. Well, it's, it's easy because we saw it happen here. So we're hoping it can happen again. And I think that's going to be a thing here for like a year or two. It's like, well, is this guy the next Zach Hyman? It's like, no. <laughs> so you're saying it's extremely rare that someone significantly improves their finishing ability and we shouldn't count on Ilya Mikheyev to do that. Yes. I think that's fair, especially after the wrist injury he suffered. But with that in mind, I do wonder what the rehabilitation time is like on an injury like that. And in year two, following that injury, is he all of a sudden feeling more comfortable in his shot? I hope so, but <laughs> I don't know. I don't have a ton of faith in him and uh, in terms of being a scorer, but I really like him as a player. And, you know, if the, to, to be honest, he's the kind of guy that if the, if the top guys ever got it together in the playoffs and produced the way that they should be producing, we would love Mikheyev because after those guys start scoring, you'd sit there and say, I just need some good shifts from players. I need guys that can spend a bunch of time in the offensive zone. I need guys that can snuff out the other team's offense. I need guys that can PK and forecheck and make life miserable. And he can do all of those things. We have a one goal lead. All of a sudden, I want him on the ice all the time now. Yeah. And the thing is, the Leafs just weren't scoring. I Even going back, and I remember I was singing him and even Engvall's praises when the Leafs were building that 3-1 lead because the Leafs were scoring. And I was sitting there going, well, let's not forget about the shifts these guys are having because they're just hemming these guys in there. They're not scoring, but... They're just killing time, and they're killing time the right way, and they're making life tough. And in a sport like hockey, eventually, aren't some of those pucks going to go in? Isn't a puck going to bounce off someone's ass and go in if you're in the offensive zone repeatedly? On occasion, but like to the level that they miss chances is insane. It does hurt at some point, yeah. When you're not turning those XGs into Gs, that catches up with you at some point. And when you're when your top guys are all shitting themselves in the playoffs? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, you, you kind of need that to turn around. That, that's the unfair part too, right? Because those guys don't score. And then you just start, you start going down the lineup and you go, okay, well, who else isn't scoring? And at the time that you're starting to go down the lineup, Mikhail's missed three two-on-ones. Well, you know who's definitely not going to score? David Camp isn't going to provide too many goals unless he's poke-checking more pucks off of goalies. But I I'm think they're using him the wrong way. But I'm happy that you're finally intrigued. Finally. I like him defensively. I, I see what Dubas sees in him. I don't see a two-year, $1.5 million player, but I see a guy who I like on the penalty kill. I see a I face-off specialist. All summer, man. All summer I told you this. Well, no, I, I read Dubas's quotes too. I just thought he overpaid for him, which, by no. the way, Dubas overpaying for a player by a little bit never happened before. Yeah, he always That's, does that, but I don't think, I actually don't think that one is uh, an overpay. Like, I... One and a half for what he can do to me is worth it. If he's also really good on the penalty kill. I like what he can do. I've loved him on the penalty kill so far. I think him and Mikheyev there, him and Marner, I think it's going to be solid. What I worry about with him is that five on five, I think he's going to be put into too many offensive situations where he needs to do some stuff and he can't. That's just not what he is as a player. He's, he's I joked that he's Frederick Gauthier who finishes his checks. He's a guy who stays above the puck doesn't let his man behind him, no odd man rushes against, nothing's really going to happen when I'm on the ice, and that's good, that's why you pay me. But I don't put the puck in the net, I don't make plays off the rush, I don't do much offensively. I cycle, I'm a beast along the boards, but once I get in the middle of the ice, I can't really do much. That works, that has value. There are guys in the league who make a living for their families because of those traits, but if he's your third-line center, I'm worried. Yeah, sure, you can play Andre Kasha with him and hope that you can get some offense there, but... 
I think you said it right. I think you said I, they appear to be looking to use him incorrectly. Maybe they'll use him in much more extreme defensive usage, try to get a matchup against the other team's best players where he's just there to be a defensive presence. But I'm worried that there's going to be too many times where he's in the offensive zone and you need him to make a play. And he's, that's just not who he is as a player. Yeah, and I think that they're in I think that they're in a weird spot the way they're viewing it because to be honest, he's a fourth line center and because he just doesn't produce enough. Yeah. I mean he's a cliche Mike Babcock fourth line center, wins faceoffs, yeah. defensively responsible PKs. And honestly, like I know people gripe and bitch about, you know, certain numbers and whatever for a guy and people sit there and go, oh, one point five for a fourth line center. To me, if a guy if you're paying a guy one and a half mil to actually make your fourth line legitimately solid defensively and anchor it and be good on the penalty kill, sign me up. Like, I don't care. If you can trust them against tougher competition because of that, I think that's a big factor. Because if you absolutely need to shelter the piss out of your fourth line, that that has a trickle effect on the rest of your lines. Whereas if you have a fourth line that you can actually trust out there against a Bergeron line for a defensive zone start, coaches love that. That gives you a lot more flexibility in a playoff series. So I think that's worth the money. Like, I have no issue with that. I, what I think the Leafs are almost galaxy braining themselves a little bit is they're looking and saying, Jason Spets is a fourth liner and Wayne Simmons is a fourth liner and there's no point of having camp center those guys. So then de facto, he's the third line center. And I think that is the wrong approach to it. I think... I also think Kerfoot at third line center is the wrong approach, but I don't know what the right approach is then. Do you have to trade for a guy? That's where it gets tough because they've appeared to completely abandon any potential thought or notion to Nylander being a center, which I find disappointing because people have quick memories. But back in the day, I've said this a million times, Nylander was was being groomed to be the first line center of this organization. Then they won a lottery. Yeah, before they before they won the Matthews lottery, Nylander was the center of the future. He was playing center in the A and he was sick and he is sick. He was doing really well. I know there are defensive aspects that you needed him to work on, but the plays he could make from the middle of the ice, it was awesome to watch. He could I think he could easily be a really good center in this league. I like I tried to compare him to Tyler Sagan in that he's he's not gonna be good defensively. That's not who he is, but Give him the puck in the middle of the ice and watch him make plays. And and the lineup, so let's say, because you're not going to put him at center, but I think you could competently say now that he he can actually carry Alex Kerfoot and Kerfoot can complement him with his speed. Like, you could say that's two-thirds of a, of a very good third line. Kerfoot's had his most success in this Leafs organization when he plays with Nealon. Not just in the playoffs, but regular season. This is analytics. This is eye test. Kerfoot, when he plays without Nylander, has really struggled. Yeah, and so let's say you sit there and go, Nylander will be, like, carry our third line. Essentially, what the way that Babcock was using Marner when he was carrying Bozak and JVR, which is funny to say so, but it's true. And then you have, I'm not going to go through, like, who's going to play with who, but then you have a Tavares-led second line, and you have a Matthews-led first line, and Camp should be your fourth-line center, in that like that's the actual proper order to do things but i think that they're just like you know it's always the parade for the top guys and pampering them and making sure their life is as easy as possible so instead it's like load up the top two lines some sort of camp cash third line that makes no sense where the hell do you play simmons in these lines because i feel like simmons makes whatever line he's on worse and then a fourth line with Simmons and Spezza. I don't like that. I, I prefer Spezza. Yeah. I prefer Simmons out of the lineup, frankly, but they gave him a two-year contract and a no-trade clause. And to me, that means he's going to play at least 60, 70 games, right? He's for sure starting the season. I want to say 82, but I, I'd like to think they're going to get him out of the lineup here and there. But I think he's going to play a big chunk of games. The tough thing is, I know you mentioned this, and I've I've internally struggled with this one, I won't lie. Like, I love Simmons. I mean, no, he's such a great like, dude. I struggle with this all the time. Whenever you can't I, not love this guy. When I criticize Riley, I don't like doing it because I know how great of a human being he is. Yeah. And I also know if, if things are getting um, physical or whatever the case is, like, you want Simmons around. And I'm not saying that's the reason that he should dress, but I'm saying once in a while. If you're in a playoff series with Tom Wilson, though, I, you know, I get it. Wanting Simmons out there for a shift or two to muck some stuff up. Once in a while, it's nice to have a guy that you can just be like, go cause a ruckus. And that's why I'm hoping Nick Ritchie. Can Nick Ritchie provide that for you in the top nine, and now you don't need to dress Wayne Simmons? I don't think. I see. I think I've mentioned this before. Like, 
the Leafs, they make these moves where it's like, we'll bring in Kyle Clifford. We'll bring in Nick Ritchie. We'll bring in Wayne Simmons. Like, that doesn't make your top guys play tougher. Like, either your top guys live it and they set the tone for the whole team, or they don't. And you get this, like, spot duty shit that the Leafs continually get. I think Matthews just needs to keep doing what he did last year, where he's a beast on the forecheck. He's a beast in puck battles. I think that sets the tone from the top down. He should. And there were many games where I was like, this guy actually is setting the tone. And I actually felt there were a lot of games where he was setting the tone and guys weren't following in his lead, which was disappointing. And that's that's so frustrating to watch because I'm wondering, what else do you want your superstar to do? He's doing everything yeah. and his his guys aren't following suit. I don't I don't view Richie in that way though. Like he is a little lazy. I think that's pretty clear to he, people. He can't skate, man. Yeah. What <laughs> he knows what he is though. Like if you watched him in the offensive zone, and I was keeping an eye, like he knows. He goes right to the front of the net. Yeah. I am not I'm not the zone entry guy. I am not the playmaker. I'm I'm going to the net. I'm not cycling. I'll barely be in the corners unless I'm the second or third guy in. I'm just going to the front of the net and I'm putting my big ass in front of the goalie. And he has good hands. He can finish. He's a little crafty and tight. He can shoot the puck. I want to see him and Marner a bit more because I think if Marner can just put the puck on his tape, that Nick Ritchie could score 20, 25 goals and it wouldn't be shocking. Yeah. And guys are talking about like him making plays or him complimenting whatever. I'm like, the only compliment is he goes to the front of that. He is not going to make too many plays with the puck on his stick. The puck will be on his stick for about a quarter of a second. And then it'll be off his stick because he's shooting it. And all that, all that to say is absolutely hilarious. You too can make six, two and a half million dollars a year in the NHL if you are six two, and you know to go to the front of the net, and you have a little bit of touch. And it, and occasionally you punch Ben Sherratt in the face. And you'll throw a few fights <laughs> in there, and you'll throw a few hits, and probably have a few suspensions each season. You can make two and a half million dollars, folks. All right, we said we were going to talk about Marner and the PP and the bumper spot, but I think we should save that for next week. We'll get a bigger sample on it over the next week in the preseason. It's it's a it's a square hole round peg. There is a topic of conversation that I wanted to end this podcast with. And we're going to get to it now. Anyone who's been following this Ukraine situation, it's unbelievably disappointing to see what's happened. Now, I've I've talked to a few people, I've seen some comments online. I've seen a bunch of jokes about how, wow, Ian, you expected an Eastern European country to make a progressive decision on race? Like, you know, what were you thinking? Like, obviously, this isn't going to be... The Ukraine isn't exactly the, the most progressive country in the world. But seeing the greater hockey world respond to the racist act of the Ukrainian player in the league, and three games, three games and... a find that equated to just over two thousand dollars canadian it's an absolute joke i'm glad to see the hockey community at large stood up for the right decision here did the right thing but the iahf has yet to do anything the fact that it took this long to even get a decision and the decision was pathetic i'm a straight white dude i don't have to deal with a lot of shit when it comes to society i i get a lot of benefits that i'm not even aware of on a day-to-day basis if I had to imagine what a black person is going through right now who loves the sport of hockey and the sport of hockey refuses to love them back, I, I can't imagine how painful that must be right now. And I, I want to do the right thing. I just want to help make this sport better because I love it so much. Me and you were talking about the Leafs because we love hockey. You watch hockey randomly on a Tuesday night at 11 p.m. You'll be watching hockey because you love it. Like a degenerate. Yeah. I am. But what do we do... When stuff like this happens, because me and you don't like getting too political if we can avoid it, but this is a huge issue and we need to discuss it. I, I find it, the the main thing that stood out for me here is this was such an easy decision. Like, so easy. Like, who gives a shit about this guy? Just kick him out of your league. Like, I, like how is this even a discussion? Is, the, like, is this guy selling all the endorsements in Ukraine right a, now? A I've literal never heard of this guy. Layup, I've never heard of this layup. league. I'm a huge hockey fan. Have you ever followed this league? No, like a layup. Like I, like I just don't understand how you could. I, I think, yeah, I, I don't want to get into the whole thing. I think it actually reflects a lot more of that league and the culture and like where like they're located. Uh, say this as an Italian person who you know know what it's like when I go back. I think it has a lot to do with that. So I don't want to pat anyone on that. Are things that much better in the NHL, though, or the AHL, where we see racist comments only earn a five-game suspension? 
I think if you did that, if I think if you had that action here in North America in like a random AHL game, I think you would get jumped and I think you'd be out of the league. I would really hope so, but I think so. I'm I'm not sure if we're there yet. Now I'm I'm glad that there's outrage. People get mad about outrage culture. Sometimes outrage culture can be good. Sometimes we can condemn bad things in life. Yeah, like it's it's crazy. I mean, his if you're on his team, you should be embarrassed, right? Like the whole like go down the line like that. Just I've never I've never seen someone do something like that. Like just stunning. And the the. Commissioner of the league, Eugene Kolichev, in his Twitter bio, the last thing it says is hashtag end racism. I think you did a really good job of ending racism there, buddy. Just wanted to really, you know, tip of the hat to you, sir. I'm, I woke, when I saw that this morning, I was infuriated. Like, I'm at my desk job trying to get stuff done, and I'm just fuming in my chair. I, I, I don't know what to do with all this anger, and... It's it's infuriating. I'm at a loss for words right now. I don't know what to do with this anger because this sport that I love so much just continually refuses to... I, again, you, you can see the fact that my, my, I'm struggling for words here because of how angry I am, but you're, you're a black hockey player. You're, you're a player of color, and you see this. You see the... Uh, it doesn't even matter that it's a Ukrainian league. This could have happened anywhere. It's just the fact that despite all of the online criticism and we live in a in an online world now where twitter matters and online reaction matters after all that online reaction this was the decision that was made it's pathetic it's a slap in the face and it's the sport of hockey telling you that you don't matter no i don't want to put it on the sport though i don't want to put it on the sport. and that's what people are telling me they're like ian this is just one isolated incident it's a league it's, it says more about ukraine than it does about the sport it's not an isolated incident but it is an isolated league like, do you think Gary Bettman had a say on what happened? I guarantee you Gary would. Why hasn't the IIHF stepped in yet? I know, I'm sure they will, and I hope they do, but the fact that it even got to this point is embarrassing. Maybe it's, maybe it's take, it's, I mean, it hasn't even been a day. Like, maybe they're sitting there going, what the hell just happened? Because honestly, when I saw it, the incident in the first place, and maybe I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt and being too generous, but honestly, when I saw it, what the guy did in the first place, I kind of was like, okay, this guy's like out of the league. And... Maybe the IHF, IHF thought the same thing. And I don't know what, to be honest, like I'd be lying if I said I knew any of the governing powers they have over a league like that, if anything. So, And what kind of pressure they could realistically put on them. I really hope that someone gives Jalen, I don't want to mispronounce his last name, Jalen Smarek, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is the player who the, the racist gesture was done towards him. He's going to be sitting out uh, indefinitely until the Ukrainian League gets their act together. I hope he gets a spot in an AHL squad somewhere. I hope he gets a spot somewhere else and continues his career because the shit that he's had to go through right now. And if you're just a, a black hockey fan listening to this, you're, you're a, a fan of color right now, listen to this. I want you to know that we care and we want this sport to be better. But man, it is, this is an infuriating time for me. And... I, th I think we should probably just get out of this conversation because I'm not sure how much I'm I'm even helping things right now. But I, if by not talking about it, I think we make things worse. And I wanted to make sure we had this discussion. Yeah, and I, I hope I hope it gets rectified. Like I hope they actually do the right thing. That that's kind of where I'm at. Where they didn't do the right thing today. No kidding. So we'll be back next week to talk about the Leafs, Mitch Marner on the power play, Nikita Gusev finally making a play with the puck on his stick. Uh, Timothy Liljegren not being paired with Jake Muzzin and the Leafs putting together uh, all their star players on one super team. and They kind of have an A team and a B team in the preseason now. I know you love preseason narratives. This is your favorite time of year, Anthony. So Just telling the folks, pay attention to five on five. Power play doesn't matter. Does not matter because you saw a guy stick handle the puck nice on the power play. They have to be good at five on five or they're not on the team. I'll go ahead and disagree and say I care a lot about what the Leafs stars on PP1 do because it was a disaster last year. But I know what you mean. You're trying to evaluate players, bubble players, focus on 5v5 play. In a game six or game seven in the playoffs, it's going to be five on five. So let's evaluate that level of play. Unless all four of those guys get hurt, none of those guys are touching the top power play unit. That's fair. That's the Jeremy Bracco thing. It's, yeah, that's cool. You're putting up a lot of assists on the power play, but what can you do at five on five? That's what actually matters. It's quarter after seven. The Leafs are playing right now. Let's get out of here, Anthony. We'll be back next week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. 
Looking forward to more preseason talk next week. Everyone is looking at me. Time is running and we're down by three. Look inside yourself, what do you see? The pain is in your mind, no, nothing stops me. Everyone is looking at me. Time is running and we're down by three. Look inside yourself, I know what I see.